0: Scripture reading this morning will come from Book of Proverbs, chapter 31, verse 30. It's Proverbs 31, 30. On the Pew Bibles in front of you, that will be page 587. Page 587. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. good morning it is good to see each one of you if you're a guest again we welcome you it encourages us that you're here and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you also Uh, we are thankful for the melting pot class. We mentioned last Sunday that they were going to see the Christmas lights and inviting the widows and widowers with them, and they did that this past Sunday evening, and, and uh, last Sunday, we showed you stock photos, uh, but, but these are the actual photos, and, uh, or at least some of them, and you can see that they had a great time together, and they came back to the building and enjoyed fellowship even into the evening of uh, dessert and coffee together. It's wonderful to be in a congregation, that is full of great love and compassion for each other. And uh, we want uh, everybody to know from the youngest to the oldest, everybody here is to be loved. And if we're not doing that right, we're doing something really, really wrong. Uh, God loves all of us. And God loves you more than anybody has ever loved you. And as God's family, we are to portray and to offer and give that same love for each other. And so to each that were involved in that Sunday evening, we we thank you. It's a good reminder of how wonderful it is uh, to be together and to encourage each other. Sarah Blair was not just your average 17-year-old young lady. You see, many of you will remember this is the young lady that earlier this year decided during her senior year that she was going to run for office in the panhandle of West Virginia in the House of Delegates. She beat the incumbent while she was a senior in high school. Then she did most of her campaigning from her dorm room as a freshman in college before she could even vote. And she won. By 18 years of age today, she's the youngest representative that we've ever had in America. What an accomplishment by this young woman. Her father is a senator and has been for many years. He began to serve when she was six years old and she was intrigued from the very beginning They would sit together at meals and she would ask him all kind of questions about his committee meetings and about what he did. And then they grew into deeper communication and conversations about government and about people and about economies and core values and etc. And even though she's only 18 years old, it's really interesting to hear what she says and to read what she writes. Because she has a firm belief and a conviction of what is right for her district. And she is excited to represent her district. Is it right for a woman to serve as a senator? Or in the House of Representatives? Or a CEO of a company? Or a supervisor over men in the workplace? It's interesting that since the beginning, we've seen women in five powerful positions, or at least almost since the beginning. I know that the king would have had most of the power, but it's interesting how Esther stands out in the Old Testament and one of the great ladies of the Old Testament. And you remember, she was a queen of Persia. And then we see Deborah, a woman that no doubt had great authority and she was a judge that would have had great judicial authority over the children of Israel. We see even down the road from us, a sister in Christ, lives in Columbia, Tennessee, and she serves as one of our senators. When we consider in Scripture, we can't find anything in Scripture that would say that a woman ought not to have a place, whether it be in government or in business, in any kind of leadership capacity. But then, because women have done so here in America for so many decades now, And they've served in leadership capacities so effectively. It then begins to run cross-culture when we ask the question, can a woman lead in Christ's church in every area that she would choose? And then if someone has never read what the Scriptures say, it would probably be jaw-dropping and eye-opening to hear a description of what God would say. You see, this past week, many of us have been reminded that there are still a lot of discussions that take place of is it right for a woman to, for example, preach, or is it wrong for a woman to preach? And through all of the noise that we've heard this past week, it is interesting how it is sometimes presented in the sense, maybe not intentionally, but it comes across as we need to make a decision of which side we're going to stand on. And I want to encourage you to realize that it's not a healthy mindset to say, well, I'm going to stand on the side that believes that it's wrong for a woman preacher. Or to look over at this group and say, I'm going to stand on the side that says it's right for the woman to preach. I want to remind you of something that today will not cover anything more important than over these next few minutes. You and I need to pause and ask ourselves, where does our faith come from? Faith is the core belief system that you have that forms your values, your convictions, and out of your convictions comes your behavior. Where should our faith come from? You and I must be reminded our faith doesn't come from our Christian colleges or even from congregations, whether here or abroad. Our faith doesn't come from blogs and articles and posts and open letters or even closed letters, for that matter. Our faith should not come from church fathers in the 2nd or 3rd or 4th or 5th century, or even if some of those religious men, their last name is Campbell or Stone, that still should not be where our faith comes from. Our faith should not come from whatever the latest winds of culture have been. Our faith should not come from what peers have taught us or even educators have taught us, or even what the majority says is correct. Our faith should not stem from what we feel within. If I feel it, am at peace at it, with it. Is that guidance of this is now my faith? And is that correct? My faith should not come from whatever the latest movement is that blows by in the form of a wind of doctrine. So where should our faith come from? What you believe to the core of your being and from that forms your values and from that forms your behavior, where should our faith come from? Don't you remember it, Romans 10 and 17? Very, very important verse. We learn that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Brethren, that's where our faith is to come from. And I'm reminded this past week of how easy it is to talk about important things over and over and over. And yet it seems like God's voice through His Word is the last thing that's checked with. And so today... I couldn't help but think how important it is and urged by the elders to even do so this morning. Why don't, through all this noise that we've been hearing, why don't we take the time today to just listen to God? Because after all, in His Word is where our faith is to come from. Let's be like the Bereans when we read in Acts the 17th chapter and verse 11 that these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the Word with readiness of mind. Why did they receive the Word? Why? Why the Word? Because that's where our faith comes from. They received the Word with readiness of mind. And they searched what? Blogs? Facebook posts? They searched to see what the majority believed? No, they searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether what these things were so Isn't that beautiful? Bereans, what do you always want? We're always ready to hear the preaching of God's Word. Oh, Bereans, when it's preached, you just swallow it down and say, that's a great message. They say, no, we don't. We take it and go back and study the Scriptures to see what has been preached to us. Is that what God has said? And they search the Scriptures daily to check and see if what has been said is so. Can I state the obvious for just a moment? Do you realize on a regular basis there are things that are said on behalf of God that God has never said? Do you realize that is a daily occurrence? And I can't stand here and tell you if the folks that do that or intentionally do that, or if they're misled and are doing that. But the point is, things are said on behalf of God every day that God did not say. Well, how are you and I going to know if God said it or if God didn't say it? Unless we do what? Go back and search the Scriptures daily to see if it is what God has said. As we go into this, I want to remind you that there are some things that all of us are to do in worship. The Scripture makes it clear that all of us are to sing. We're to sing to one another and we're to sing to the Lord. Therefore, the voices of men and women will be heard. The Scripture makes it clear that we're all to pray, and according to 1 Corinthians, the fourteenth chapter, at the end of the prayer, the congregants should be heard saying "Amen," because the person leading the prayer is not praying for you; he's leading you in prayer, so that at the end, your "Amen" makes it your prayer. We also see that all are to give, all are to take the Lord's Supper. All are to study the Holy Word of God together. But this leads us to a very important question this morning. Are there restrictions about who can lead in worship? There are two passages of restrictions that we read about in the New Testament. Christ's covenant. Christ's blood was shed for this covenant to be purchased. And within Christ's covenant, there are two passages that are very clear. The first we'll cover now. The second we'll cover later. 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter. I hope you have your Bibles open because we will not have the verses that we're going to read on the screen this morning. And so if you will, turn to 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter. If you need to borrow a Bible there, it'll be page 1022. And the Bible that's there in your pew, 1022. I'd like for you to notice... that there is a broader context to just the context of whether or not women can lead in worship as we go to 1 Corinthians the 14th chapter. And to be fair to any text, we need to make sure that we don't just pull a few verses out of context. Everett Ferguson, in his little book that he wrote uh, on this topic, he lays out and shows how each of the three areas that he addresses has a similar outline, and that helps us to understand the teaching. The better we can understand the scripture, the better we can understand, naturally, the will of God. And so I'd like you to notice what we're about to read. We're about to see that each group is identified. The rule about whether or not they are to speak or not is identified. The example and the condition form is stated, and then the justification of the rule is also given. Let's read in the 14th chapter, verse 27 and 28, 1 Corinthians the 14th chapter. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent. In church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Now, in the first century, before the, the Word of God was finally uh, all written, we have miraculous powers that were given by miraculous gifts to those of the first century, speaking in tongues as well as to prophesy. And so he's going to give some restrictions here, and as we go back and notice this slide here, what you and I just read. He named the group, and it was those who were going to speak in tongues tongues and then he gives a rule about their speech there's to be two and no more than three when this is taking place And they are to take turns. When we go back and read in verse 26, it's clear that what is to be done is to be done in a way that edifies the entire group. And the conclusion in verse 40 is that all things are to be done decently and in order. You see, when there's mass confusion, everybody can't be built up. Instead, everybody is confused. And so it's in the middle of this passage that he makes clear that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And so what he's doing is he's laying out an atmosphere that's going to rule the worship, that is going to be that of peace that can truly build up everyone in, a, in the sense of edification. But notice the third thing is that there must be one to interpret. Now we have an example in conditioned form here. In verse 28, if there is no interpreter, the one speaking in tongues is to keep silent. That carries with it the idea of peace, but it's not simply peace. It's the idea of the lack of language is what creates the peace. In other words, right now, if I were speaking and someone else stood up beside me and started speaking at the very same time, you would probably say, that was chaotic. Well, how are we going to bring peace to this situation? One has to keep silent to create that condition of favorable learning, if you will. Now, notice the justification because someone that's speaking in a tongue could say, but, but God gave me a message and you're going to tell me because there's no interpreter today that I'm not going to get to share my message? And he says, sure, you can share your message. Speak to yourself and to God. In other words, it's not wasted. You benefit from that message and you and God Will appreciate the message that's been given to you. Now let's read, if you will, the next group 29 and 30 through 33. Let two or three prophets speak and let the other judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. Notice how this phrase is going to recur all three times keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, then all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Some translations puts the period there and links to the next phrase with the following, as in all the churches of the saints, let the women keep silent, etc. But other translations will say, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, period. So what do we read here? Let's notice here on this slide just the, the consistency here. He names the group. He's speaking to prophets and he gives the rule about their speech. They too are to take turns. Two or three speaking and they must take turns, not at the same time. And then when he says, let others judge, we don't know for sure if he's talking about other prophets judge or just others that are hearing the message judge there. But then he gives an example of the conditioned form there. And that is in verse 30. If another prophet is given a revelation... The first prophet that is speaking is then to keep silent, so that one by one we can all learn. Do you see how that worked there? Let's say that let's say that in that first century where there was a miraculous message given to a prophet, and any of you have ever taught or preached, I know you thought the same thing. How sweet would that be? You know, I just set my alarm about 7 o'clock on Sunday morning, and I would just, you know, get up quick, take a shower, rush in, and say, God, give me a message and stand up and preach to you. And you'd say, wow, that's the best message you ever preached. But it doesn't work that way. You know, we that preach and teach have to study all through the week. And we have to study God's Word in order to present God's Word. But since God's Word had not been complete at this time, the message had to be brought in a miraculous but divine fashion. And so let's just imagine the first century. I'm the prophet that's speaking first this morning. And there's a second prophet over here, and the message comes to the second prophet. I am commanded that when that message comes to the second prophet, I must keep silent. So that the second prophet can stand up and can preach. And we say, okay, so what's the justification for this rule? Notice, the spirits are subject to the prophets. Do you see the justification there? In other words, someone couldn't say, well, the gift was given to me. I just had to use it. He says, oh, no, no. The prophet has control over the gift, not the gift has control over the prophet." And it's the same way today when when people argue that they speak in tongues and then they say that they can't control it. Even back in the first century when people were speaking in tongues, they were commanded to control it. If there was no interpreter, they did not speak. If someone else was speaking, they did not speak. The same way for the prophet. They took their turn. And, and even though the first one might still have a message on his tongue, when the second one received it, he was to keep silent. And now let's read the, the next group that he refers to. And we'll pick up in 34. Still in 1 Corinthians 14. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. What do we see here? We see the group is women. And we see a few rules about speech. One, they are to keep silent in the churches. Two, they are not permitted to speak. Three, but they are to be submissive. And notice how that silence ties back to the submissiveness. And the example of the condition is this, to learn by asking their husband at home. And and the same way for woman and wife in the New Testament in the original Greek is the same for the husband and the man. And that is you always look to the context. It's the same Greek word usually. And so you look for the context to say, is this just speaking about a woman or is this speaking about a wife? Is this just speaking about a husband or is this speaking about a man? And so it might not necessarily be the husband here. It may be that the woman is to ask her man. In that day and time in that culture, most women would have had some kind of man in their life that, that helped them along, whether it was a brother, whether it was uh, an a, a uncle or a father or a husband. And so here the problem is if if you have something that you want to ask in church instead of speaking up while someone else is speaking and disrupting, the answer is keep silent. Well, how are we going to learn? Because in both cases, in 1 Timothy 2 and in 1 Corinthians 14, a great part of the emphasis of this teaching is placed on the women learning and you might say, why is the emphasis placed on that? Because oftentimes in their culture, the emphasis was not placed upon women learning. Some cultures actually consider women as property and that they were not to go to school. One sect of Jews would actually say that you might as well burn the Torah before you teach it to a woman. In other words, it was the idea that women did not have a place in Learning. And so in some groups, they would literally seat the women either to the back or if there was a balcony situation, up in the balcony. It was the idea that the men were the ones that really should learn. Listen, Jesus shattered so many of those things that counted women as second-class citizens and belittled them. And what is interesting, when you go back and study history, anywhere that Christianity moved, the rule of thumb is that the appreciation and esteem of women rose wherever Christianity went. And it is because of teaching such as this. And so it's powerful that, that the woman is to be taught she is to learn but she's not to interrupt the services in order for that learning to take place the justification here or the condition is that she can ask at home but notice the justification of the rule verse 35 it is shameful for a woman to speak in church let's skip a slide here and i'd like for us to in the last few minutes that we have here let's define a few things can we define the word silent? When we look at 1 Corinthians the fourteenth chapter, verse 33, let the women keep silent. It's a fair question to ask. Can we know what is meant by that? In other words, does it just simply mean that there was a, a very temporary or unique situation taking place in Corinth? where where the women were busting out, interrupting. And so this was a command that was a unique command. It was very much the culture of their congregation, and he was addressing just them. And so does it mean that the silence is just don't burst out, keep your peace in that sense? Or is there a teaching here that is much more broad than that? Well, let's, let's let the scriptures define themselves and teach us. Can we know what it's meant? When we look at this next slide, it's just a reminder that when we look at keeping silent, it's the same exact word in 28, 30, and 34. In other words, in 28, whenever he told the ones speaking in, in tongues, if there was no interpreter, they were to keep silent. What would that mean? You don't speak up today if there's no interpreter. Or in verse 30, whenever there was one speaking and then a message of prophecy came to another setting by, the first one was to keep silent. Stop speaking. Sit down. And so now we come and say, can we understand what it means here with this final usage here? Well, if it meant to not speak up, and to not teach in both of the other occasions, why would it mean something different here when it is the same word used in the very same grammatical format? But we can go beyond that to really try to understand even with more clarity, if you will. So look with me on this next slide in 34 and 35. It's the verses we've just been reading. But I want you to notice some things that's highlighted. Three times, three times... God tells us what he wants. Number one, keep silent. And I've already mentioned to you, that word silent is the idea of peacefulness because of the ceasing of language. In in other words, if if you walk up to your children and and there's chaos going on, you say, everybody, everybody, be silent. What what do you mean by that? Someone keeps talking. They're, They're not being silent. Okay, but then notice second, the clarification here. For they are not permitted to speak. Not is the negative word to say, don't do it. Permitted is the word that says it's allowed. Speak here is the Greek word that's one of the most common Greek words. It's used 271 times in the New Testament, and it just means to utter, to speak. It even sometimes is referring to preaching. It's just your common word to speak. So notice, he's saying, do not allow... The woman to speak. So be silent, keep peace by not speaking, do not permit the woman to speak, and then finally at the end of 35, it is for it is shameful for a woman to speak. Now, wait a minute. That's not true in every culture. So now whatever Paul has commanded is not cultural. There are plenty of cultures where. It's not a shame for women to speak. And I doubt, seriously, in Corinth, that that would be like the New York City of our day. That would be like the San Francisco of our day. You're going to go to Corinth and say that it is a shame for a woman to speak? Not culturally. You, You can't sell that ticket at all. No one is going to buy that. So then, how was it a shame for the woman to speak? It was a shame for the woman to speak for a principle that goes far deeper than just the present situation in Corinth. In other words, he's not saying, it's shameful only for a woman to speak right here in Corinth. Now, someone says, how can you know that? What is interesting is anytime the Scriptures gives you deeper principles, you can cling to those and work your way back out. So in the last, just I know we're running out of time Last couple minutes we have here Look look at the deeper principle Go to 1 Corinthians 13, 34 again And and I want you to notice on, on this next slide How we have a different highlighting here It says, let the women keep silent in the churches For they are not permitted to speak But they are to be submissive as what? As the law also says This is not about culture, friends He makes it about law What law is he talking about there? Well, when we look at this next slide, it's the very same verse. Notice it's the law that deals with submissiveness. Now, I don't know of any scholar that would say, I know 100% for sure what law, in other words, the exact quote that Paul is referring to here. But nevertheless, almost everyone can be assured he's talking about laws that deal with the submissiveness of women. And probably what most agree is that he's going back to Genesis, the third chapter, when the punishments were being handed out to Adam, to Eve, and to Satan for the sin uh, that took place there in Genesis, the third chapter. And so on this next slide, I'd like for us to just notice here as we read in Genesis, third chapter, verse 16. To the woman, he said, he'll greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain, shall bring forth children.'" Your desire shall be for your husband, and what? He shall rule over you. Now, that's not the only place we get the idea of submissiveness, and we can see this even later on tonight when we study 1 Timothy, the second chapter, and even Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians, 11th chapter, verse 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. And that is, submissiveness comes also from the order of creation, Genesis, the second chapter, verse 22 through 24. But here, Paul chooses to mention submissiveness as it pertains to the rule of the man over woman and the woman's willingness to submit. So why is the woman not going to speak? Why is she not permitted to speak? Why is it a shame for her to speak? Because she has now shown that she is not submissive to man, but now she is showing herself to be authoritative before man. Now where does he go from here? I'd like for you to read with me, 1 Corinthians fourteen, thirty-six. Paul in a sense calls them out, and, and if I could just throw this on to say any time that I hear people trying to make 1 Corinthians fourteenth chapter only cultural, first I cringe because it's clear in scripture it's not cultural. There's some cultural things happening but the law is not cultural. The second thing I cringe about is I always wonder what they do personally when they sit down and they read 36, 37, 38. Paul becomes a little bit probably sarcastic here, but that doesn't take away from the truth of it. And so in 36, he's talking to these people that that thought that, hey, we're gonna let our women here rise up and speak. And so he says, or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? You see what he's doing there? He's saying it's interesting because as long as as God's children have existed, women have not preached. You can imagine Paul saying that. So maybe you have some new message that we've never heard. Even though I'm an apostle, isn't it interesting? Maybe something's originated with you that we have never heard. Or is it that this message came through you and to you And it just didn't reach us. And then he pulls out all stops to say this. 37, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. That's right. It would not be appropriate for me to go there. But all I'm doing is preaching the Word of God. So he says, okay, you want a woman to lead? If you really are spiritual, you're going to hear my message today, Paul says, and you're going to know that it is not of God for her to be leading the assembly. But maybe you're not spiritual. He says, maybe you're just ignorant. Isn't that something when we live in a time where people say, Paul disrupts Christ's scriptures. That we have to follow Christ and not Paul. And we have Paul right here saying, listen, this isn't just a commandment of Paul. This is a commandment of the Lord. You're going to be spiritual or you're going to be ignorant. Which one are you going to follow? Now friends, listen. I get it just like you get it that there are going to be worlds of people around us, that their influence is more so by culture than any other source. And so they would would hear the topic today and wouldn't even know what to do with it. To them, it would be so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But brethren, the very core of Christianity is sanctification. Sanctification. And sanctification means that we step out of the world separate and apart for service as God had called us to do. The world is never going to understand kingdom living. But there's a huge problem when those who live in the kingdom try to let the world set the standard for how to live kingdom living. So as we go back to our social media this week, and I hope you come back tonight, but as we go back to our social media this week, I want to urge you to realize that all of the noise is not what is to establish our faith. Our faith is to come by hearing and hearing the Word of God. Tonight we'll see the second passage of Restriction that the Lord gives and hopefully be able to maybe make it make a little more sense uh, than just this sharp, abrupt ending here. If you're a guest this morning, I don't know what you're thinking. But I can tell you this. If you have interest in seeing what God's will is, you'll learn quickly that God never sets His standards by culture. God sets His standards by what is right and best. And so it's a matter of faith. If you want to live by sight, you may not see this one. But if you want to live by faith, by faith we can see this. This morning, can we help you take steps closer to God? Is there anything that we can do to, to answer questions for you, to sit down and study more? I hope and pray that there's not an error We know it all. We've got everything figured out. There's a lot about this topic that can be challenging. I don't suggest to you that I've got everything figured out, or anyone in this room does. But I promise you, the only direction that we must go to is to God's holy word. And this morning, that's the invitation. is the Lord's invitation that we extend. If you want to be immersed into Christ for the remission of your sins, that's the Lord's invitation. If you want to come back and be restored, pray forgiveness, that's the Lord's invitation. If there's anything we can do to help each other, we want to help each other. We are imperfect people, only saved by the grace of God on our way to the Father. But along the way, our commitment must be this. Thy will be done in everything.